can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. If you grew up in the late 80s or early 90s, a better title might be, Look Who's Sheep Talking To. (laughs) Not many of you grew up during those days. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you were here a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, we began looking at this psalm. I want to continue looking at it this evening. And again, Lord willing, next Wednesday night as well. When we consider Psalm 23, the familiarity of it, there's something about it that we love, that is familiar, that's like home at the holidays. But the familiarity runs the risk of concealing the benefits and blessings of the text. It's eloquent. It's simple, and it's full of wonder. Henry Ward Beecher was the son of Lyman Beecher, who was a pastor on the East Coast. Henry Ward Beecher is better known as the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, the famous abolitionist for slavery. Henry wrote this about Psalm 23. It has charmed more griefs to rest than all the philosophy of the world. It has remanded their dungeon more felon thoughts, more black doubts, more thieving sorrows than there are sands on the seashore. It has comforted the noble host of the poor. It has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured balm and consolation into the heart of the sick of captives in dungeons, of widows in their pinching griefs, of orphans in their loneliness. Dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospitals have been illuminated. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. It has made the dying Christian slave freer than his master. It will go singing to your children and my children and their children through all the generations of time, nor will it fold its wings to the last pilgrim is safe and time ended. And then it shall fly back to the bosom of God whence it issued and sound on, mingled with all those sounds of celestial joy which make heaven musical forever. This is Psalm 23. And it's been so many of those things to so many of us and so many others. I suppose with that in mind, we could title it, 
the sheep song rather than sheep talk. It is really a song, that new song in our hearts. The Lord is my shepherd. And again, like before, as we think about it being sheep talk, we want to ask the question of ourselves, do you talk like this? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Can you talk like this? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Wouldn't you like to talk like this? He leads me beside quiet waters and restores my soul and guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. We need a shepherd. We're dependent, vulnerable, marked by independency, yet incapable of doing any good thing apart from him. Not just dependent, but foolish, so easily lost, wandering here and there, always seeking the greener grass. We're dependent and foolish and stubborn, fighting being cleansed by him and his word, fighting against the means of grace, resisting being rescued. Psalm 23 is not a prayer. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a statement of faith. We called it a confident declaration last time. The Lord is my shepherd. And as a result of the confident declaration that he is our shepherd, we noted that there was a comforting deduction. We shall not want. We shall not lack any good thing because he is our shepherd. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. And he's the great shepherd who through his own blood equips you to do every good thing according to his will. And he's the chief shepherd who will return, granting an unfading crown of glory to his own. So by implication and by inference, the Lord is my shepherd, we shall not want. Because of who he is and what he's done for us in Christ, we lack no good thing. I shall not want. Verse 2, all the provisions that we need are granted in him. Verse 3, every path that he desires for us to travel, he guides us along. Verse 4, every aspect of protection that we need, he gives it to us. Everyone who belongs to him, all his people are guarded by him in the presence of their enemies. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. He is perpetually good towards his people. We've considered this in some measure In the book study recently, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. We've considered the aspect that God himself is good. That it is another thing altogether if we're willing to not just believe that he is good, essentially, but that his goodness is tracking us down, following us day in and day out. When morning comes, as evening comes, his goodness and his mercy, his loving kindness, it is following us. And his grace is pouring incessantly from above into our lives to the point of overflowing. 
If the Lord is your shepherd, you will not lack rest nor refreshment, restoration nor guidance, fellowship nor comfort, provision nor blessing or satisfaction. If the Lord is your shepherd, you will not lack goodness nor mercy nor eternal life nor glory, not now, not ever. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 specifically together this evening. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Okay? I have four points and then some closing thoughts. Point one, rest given. Point two, refreshment granted. Point three, restoration given. Point three, pardon, point four, verse 3b, righteous guidance. And then the final thoughts are pertaining to the last phrase, for his namesake. Rest given, refreshment granted, restoration given, and righteous guidance, all for his namesake. We noted previously the personal pronouns here in Psalm 23 and the benefit of considering the psalm from the vantage point of all of God's benefits in Christ that are toward us as a result of him being our shepherd. I sent you home to count them. Did anybody find more than 17? Anybody find less than 17? Did anybody count them? A few of you did. The I, the me, the my. Now, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, God is dealing with the problem of poor shepherds leading his people or failing to lead them properly. And the Lord speaks through the prophet Ezekiel. We'll begin reading in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. And I will read in a few nouns and verbs for the sake of emphasis. For thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11, we'll read through 17. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep. And I will seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will Feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will back the scattered. I will bind up the broken, and I will strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment as for you, my flock. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Here is 
God stepping in and making the point that he is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. He will care for his people. Then we have David writing in Psalm 23 saying the testimony of God is true. This has been my experience. He has made me lie down in green pastures. He has led me beside quiet waters. He has restored my soul. He has guided me in the paths of righteousness. He's been with me. He's comforted me. He's prepared a table before me. He's anointed my head with oil. He's followed me with his goodness and his loving kindness. And he's promised that I will dwell in his house forever. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Point number one, rest given. Sheep. We probably do not have a sheep farmer one among us, do we? None. I'm not surprised. There aren't many around here. I only know what I know about sheep from what I've read. Actually, I know a little bit about sheep because I haven't always lived in America. And sheep were plentiful in the Horn of Africa, in Ethiopia, and they're also tasty. That's what I know most. (laughs) Most of what I know is how to get them on the fire and when to take it off the fire and how to consume it. Sheep, when they are grazing, simply will not rest when there's commotion going on around them. They're skittish, they're sensitive, they're anxious. Any kind of commotion is potential danger for them. Which is why what David says here is so wonderful. He, the shepherd, he makes me lie down in green pastures. We we are like sheep. There's a lot of noise. And when we listen, when we are too tuned in to the clamoring of the world, we are not properly resting in God. When we are tuned in and and giving any attention to the lies of the enemy, we are not properly resting in God. When we listen and respond wrongly to the desires of the flesh, we are not properly resting in God. He makes me, David writes, lie down in green pastures. There is a spirit of restlessness that is prevalent in our day. It's prevalent among us, in me, like Noah's dove flying here and flittering there, finding no rest, failing to listen and respond to Christ who said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It is an irresistible desire to rest in God when we are convinced how good he is. He convinces us of his goodness and his greatness and his glory. And when we experience the comfort of sins forgiven, and when we recognize that he does all things well, that he's the judge of all the earth and only and always does what is right, 
our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies are then at rest in him. And we do come to him, weary and worn and sad, and we lay down with our burdened souls. And he gives us rest. Rest is so important that God himself displays the example for us by resting. It's hard for us to fathom. Why would God have rested? All my money is on the fact that he did not get tired. And yet he rested. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, Genesis 2, verse 2. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And he didn't stop there. He gives us that pattern in the early days of creation, the seventh day. After creating the world, God rests. And the pattern would be sufficient, but he doesn't stop there. When he is giving the law to his people in Exodus chapter 20, he notes in the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. He's referring to the pattern that he himself made. The sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What about it? Primarily this. Rest. God rested. That's what he did. And that's our goal, to rest. How do we remember? How do we observe? How do we keep it holy? First, by working. Doing all our work. That's included in the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And secondly, by resting. By not doing our work. That's the command, helpfully understood in a rhythm of work for six days and worship for one. Six days you work, one day you worship. Of labor and leisure, six days you labor and one day you cease from that labor. Or of toil and rest, six days you toil unto the Lord and one day you rest from your work and rest in God. Even Jesus to his disciples in Mark 6, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. I mean, here's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. And his command to his disciples was not, Keep on going, the whole world's lost. Why are you sleeping? We can sleep when we get to heaven. Come apart. The King James says, come apart and rest a while. And I heard one preacher say one time, if you do not come apart to rest, you will come apart. 
Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest. But why? Why rest? It's restorative for our minds and our bodies. God created us to need rest. It's a reminder of our weakness. It requires us to trust God. Every one of us. At least once. Some of you, maybe three or four times, fall lifeless into God's care every 24-hour period. It reminds us we are weak. He does not need us, but He desires to give us rest in order that we might be restored, to remind us of our weakness, and to require us again and again to be mindful of the trust that we have in Him. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I will rest in him. He makes me lie down in green pastures, David says. I will rest in him because he's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I am secure in him. I am eternally safe in God. Eternally and forever secure in Christ because of what he's done for us. Lack of belief and lack of confidence in God with regard to his guarantee to save his people to the uttermost results in terrible anxieties. We are, as I mentioned earlier, greatly affected by flittering around. It is a spirit of restlessness. Some of that is the anxiety. So much of that is the anxieties within from a failure to rest in God, to recognize the security and the salvation and the safety that He has provided for us through the gospel. If you're concerned about the possibility of losing your salvation tomorrow or next week, you'll never have peace with God. You'll never experience rest in your soul. If you're concerned about this situation or that situation and what you're going to do to control it, that results in anxieties within us. We weren't made to have control. We're commanded to have self-control, and for that, we need the Holy Spirit. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Assurance, confidence, and rest come from the green pastures of God's Word. The, The opposite of resting in God is constantly questioning God. In order to know true rest, self must be dethroned. Questioning him, bitterness towards him, resentment towards him with regard to situations and circumstances, we will not truly and fully rest in him until we recognize that he is trustworthy, until we bow before him. 
dying to self and seeking to walk very nearly to him. Psalm 37, 7, rest in the Lord. That's Psalm 23, 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd, I will rest in him. He makes me. David said he makes me rest. It is so enticing because he is my shepherd. And he's not just our shepherd. He's our great high priest. He's our shield, our strong tower, our hiding place, our elder brother, our truest friend, our all in all. It's no wonder Horatius Benar writes of it in this way. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. Do you remember the response? I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. There is gladness in God. There's there's rest to be had in him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack rest in him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. But not only that, he leads me beside quiet waters. William Cooper writes, where is the blessedness I knew when first I sought the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Soul-refreshing He leads me beside quiet waters, David writes. He refreshes us. He gives us what we need to be satisfied. From a physical standpoint, food and drink are absolute necessities for sheep. They will not live long without adequate water and adequate food. It's not any different for us. We too, we need the provision of food and water and air to breathe. Jesus himself said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He didn't say we don't live by bread, just not by bread alone. We need bread, we need food and drink, but we also need the spiritual refreshment that is these quiet waters that God leads us by as our good shepherd. Jesus would later say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then two chapters later in John, come to me and you will not hunger. Come to me, he says, and you will never thirst. He leads me beside quiet waters. Again, John 7, Jesus continues, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He gives us rest. He gives us the provision that we need in food and drink. He leads me beside quiet waters. We, like sheep, are so prone to wonder, looking for greener grass. When God has said to us in Hosea 14.5, I will be like the dew to Israel. Literally, in the original language, I will be like the quiet water to Israel. That's remarkable. He leads me beside himself. It's Psalm 23, 2b. He leads me 
beside himself. He is what we need. He comes near. He draws near. He is our provision. If we are to go on in the Christian life, we must be renewed in our strength, refreshed in our strength. And God, as our good shepherd, has determined that we will not lack anything that we need to press on in walking with him and serving him. Now, that's not a difficult statement to make or a difficult concept to understand if we just look at verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Good enough. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sounds good. He leads me beside quiet waters. It's getting better. He restores my soul. That's wonderful. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Glory. But look what's coming. Verse 4 is a reality. Verse 5 is a reality. And verse 2 is not separated from those realities that are coming. Death and evil and enemies are real. And it's even in the midst of those difficulties and those realities of life that the Lord is our shepherd. And we will not lack even in the midst of walking through the, shadow of the, through the valley of the shadow of death. When we face evil, when we face enemies... God promises to make us lie down in the green pastures beside the quiet waters, restoring our souls and guiding us in righteous paths. He gives us rest. He grants us refreshment. Point number three, he restores my soul. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Isaiah said it this way, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And David says, he restores my soul. We are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave the God we love. We do go astray and turn our own way. And again and again, he restores our soul. It is a turning back. That's the emphasis here in these words. It's a turning back again and again to the Lord, our shepherd. Because the Lord is our shepherd, our soul is guaranteed to be restored again and again. Every time we wander off course, he's right there taking us by the hand and bringing us back. And setting us forward and pointing us in the right direction and holding our hand, sometimes carrying us to guarantee that we make progress in the proper direction. He restores my soul. He restores our soul to a realization of the union that we have with Christ, to communion and fellowship with Him. Fellowship with Christ now is like the outer court of the new Jerusalem. Fellowship with him is sweet, but it is preparing us for the inner court of heaven itself. When we see him as he is, when we're made like him, when the presence and power of sin is no more, 
He restores our souls day after day, turning us again and again away from sin and back to Christ. O Jesus, full of truth and grace, Charles Wesley writes, more full of grace than I of sin, yet once again I seek thy face. Open thine arms and take me in, and freely my backslidings heal, and love the faithless sinner still. Thou knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. O for thy truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more. The ruins of my soul repair and make my heart a house of prayer. The stone to flesh again convert. The veil of sin again remove. Sprinkle thy blood upon my heart and melt it by thy dying love. This rebel heart by love subdue and make it soft and make it new. Wesley knew the reality of this and he writes every verse of this hymn is full of Wesley realizing his proneness to turn away from God to sin and he's begging Jesus who is full of grace turn me yet again turn my face back remind me of the truths of the gospel remind me of the comfort of sins forgiven freely heal my backslidings again love me even though I'm faithless I keep on falling please restore me yet again for truth and mercy's sake my soul I've almost ruined by turning again and again away from you and he asked God repair it Make my heart a house of prayer. Convert again. The word there restores is the word for convert in the original language. The stone to flesh again restore, we may say. The veil of sin again remove. Sprinkle thy blood upon my heart, melted by thy dying love. He restores my soul. Do you think the apostle Peter, having denied the Lord, at the crucifixion and then gone fishing, giving up, being called to be fishers of men and going back to his former way of life and the Lord coming out to him on the water and then when they end up on the beach. Do you think when Jesus said to him, Simon, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you think Peter might have been thinking, he restores my soul? He had denied the Lord, and he was restored. David knew restoration from wicked sins of laziness and lust and adultery and murder. And he writes, he restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We will not lack rest, not physical rest or spiritual rest. We will not lack refreshment for our souls, for our minds. We will not lack restoration because he is our shepherd. Spiritual restoration again and again. And it doesn't even stop there. The fourth point, he guides me in the paths of righteousness. 
Rest, refreshment, and restoration are all granted, and righteous paths are guided for us. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. What are paths of righteousness? I have a list of synonyms just to throw at you. Paths of righteousness. They are tracks of truth. A highway of holiness. Veins of virtue. Roads of righteousness. A byway of blessedness. A pathway of purity. A maze of morality. A sidewalk of self-denial. And the flip side of it, it is avoiding the ways of wickedness. He guides us in the paths of righteousness. He's right there with us. This is, this is a close guiding. This is not him standing back with us in the early days of conversion and him pointing at all the places that you're supposed to go. When I was in college, one of the numerous jobs that I had was working third shift at a super Walmart We called them super Walmarts back then because there was a regular Walmart and then they became a super Walmart and now they're just Walmart. But when they added grocery, I worked in the grocery part, stocking third shift. And part of the training in a Walmart was that if any customer asked for something, you didn't tell them where it was. You didn't just point. We were trained. You take them there. You walk them all the way there. I don't know if that training is still the same, but when I ask for someone in Walmart where something is, I try to say, you don't have to take me. Like, just please just tell me. But that's the way these guiding us in the paths of righteousness is. God isn't just giving us directions and sending us on our own. He's taking us by the hand and guiding us along the way. Can you imagine how difficult it would be, how impossible it would be if he simply told us all the twists and turns of life and all the hills of difficulty and all the valleys of despair. I don't know of any of us that would even set off well, much less finish well, if we knew what was coming. But what a wonderful reality that the Lord is my shepherd. He will guide me in the paths of righteousness. He's right there with me. Not just pointing out the way to go, but carrying us along the way. We couldn't handle that if he simply pointed out the pathway. I mean, imagine being yourself for one, or me, myself, but imagine being one of the believers in Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, it it starts off pretty good, right? Abraham, Moses, I mean, they had some difficulties. But compared to the way the chapter ends, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experiencing mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. Imagine that being pointed out. And this is what's coming. And after a few years, then you're going to face a stoning and, or being sawn in two or being tempted or put to death with the sword. You may have to go about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I don't know about you, but if if that's the, the direction I'm pointed in, 
When I become a believer, that's the direction I'm going. The opposite way. But God doesn't do that. He's our shepherd. And he makes us lie down, giving us rest. And he leads us beside quiet waters, granting us refreshment. And he restores our soul day after day. And he guides us in the paths of righteousness. How does he do it? Take up your cross and follow me. We follow him. We die to self. We deny ourselves and we follow him. We trust in him with our whole hearts. We don't lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Or Psalm 119, 105. How do we walk with him? How does he guide us? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is how he guides us, on the pages of his word. He guides us step by step, day by day, through the revealed truth of Scripture. Then the last little phrase, for his name's sake. Here's the reason. It's not like there was one needed. But it's pretty encouraging when you get to that point. Why would he do it? He's my shepherd. Therefore, I don't lack any good thing. Why would he give me rest and refreshment and restoration and guidance? Why? What's the purpose? What's the motive? For his name's sake. This is wonderful because the name of God, it's more than some random compilation of three letters. In our language, his name, God's name, for his name's sake, it's, it's the essence of who God is. He's inseparable from his name. His character is wrapped up in it. His reputation is wrapped up in it. His identity is wrapped up in his name. It's, it's not a label. Our name is something that we have. We have a name. What is your name? What is my name? For his name's sake. He doesn't have a name. It, it's, it's who he is. His name is synonymous with his person, his character, and his essence. I am the Lord, Isaiah 42.8. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. For my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? His name, his praise, and his glory Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, the psalmist says in Psalm 115. But to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Psalm 106, 8, nevertheless he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Psalm 111, verse 9, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. 
He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Within his name, the name of God, the essence of God is comprised holiness and purity and flawlessness and righteousness and justice and impeccability. And yet it's blended with boundless mercy and everlasting kindness and long-suffering patience. For his namesake, I think it's helpful not to just consider it as a tag on the end there, verse 3, but think about it like this. He makes me lie down in green pastures for his namesake. He leads me beside quiet waters for his namesake. He restores my soul for his namesake. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Sheep talk or sheep song. Are you experiencing God as the good shepherd who laid down his life, as the great shepherd and as the chief shepherd who grants all your provisions, guides all your paths, gives you protection, guards all of his people, and is good perpetually towards you? Can you talk like a sheep? Can you sing like a sheep? Are you resting in Christ and Christ alone in his shed blood? Are you seeking refreshment in his word? Are you being restored day by day? May God help us to cultivate a spirit of contentment, of peace and rest and assurance, a settledness. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. We don't have a lot of control over our circumstances. But we can follow the pattern of the apostle and learn contentment no matter the circumstance. And we do that by looking to the Lord who is our shepherd and recognizing that when he is our shepherd, we have no wants, no lacks, Because he makes us lie down in green pastures, giving us necessary rest. He leads us beside quiet waters, accomplishing refreshment and restoration for our souls. And he guides us day after day, year after year. And he does so in the paths of righteousness, the right paths, the right way. And he does it all for his name's sake. So we can hope in him. And we can trust him because he's not ultimately doing it for us. We're the great beneficiaries, but we can't be the purpose and the foundation because of how fickle we are. The only thing he knows about fickleness is us. He is rock solid, sure and steadfast. And if he's our shepherd, we will not want. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would cause it to sink into every aspect of our life, every fiber of our being, 
to the depths of our hearts and souls in order that it might bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance and righteousness. We long to live lives that are pleasing to you. We want to hope in you more fully, more constantly, more truly. We thank you, God, that you are a good shepherd and that we can have confidence in you, that we will not lack any good thing. God, give us the rest and refreshment and restoration and the righteous leading that we need and do so for the sake of your great name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.